Hear the word of the Lord as it comes to us from Genesis chapter 14. After Abram returned from defeating Ketelomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shebeh. Now, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. We are continuing our three-week series on saints. As we said last week, we do not have an official order in the Methodist Church of Saints. There's no election process by which somebody becomes a saint. We don't pray to the saints. We believe that Jesus is the only mediator we need between us and God. But we do affirm that we believe in the saints. Every week when we say the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in the communion of the saints. And so as we said last week, we believe saintliness is a quality that leads us to Christ-likeness. When you have people in your life that you can look to that point the way to Jesus, we call those people saints, the people who act like Christ, helping us to know God more and to be more like Christ. And so I want to continue that sermon series this morning by preaching on the subject, Saints of Righteousness. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. I'm not sure that I've met too many Alabamians who have not at some point in their life read the book To Kill a Mockingbird. Most of us have heard, maybe watched, the story about Scout and Jim and Dill, Boo Radley, Tom Robinson, Atticus Finch, all these well-known characters. If you go any late spring to the town of Monroeville, which is the inspiration for the fictional town of Maycomb, you can see the story acted out as a play. I have friends who've performed that annual production so many times that they've memorized everybody's lines. And I remember in the eighth grade taking multiple quizzes about trying to match the the quotes to the character. Did you ever do that when you were in middle school? You had to say on the test, who said this line? I was remembering those quizzes when I was reflecting on this book in preparation for our sermon today. And I was reminded of some of my favorite lines from this great Alabama story. Lines like the time where, where Scout says, I shall never marry Atticus. And Atticus asks, well, why? And she says, I might have children. Or when Calpurnia says, people don't like to have somebody knowing more than they do. It aggravates them. I was like, that, that's a profound line that Michael and my wife would both say is true of me. Or how about whenever Scout says, ladies in bunches always fill me with vague apprehension and a firm desire to be elsewhere. There are many memorable lines from this iconic book. But I want to begin this sermon this morning by reading a short ex- excerpt, if you allow me to. It takes place at the end of the 23rd chapter. Jim and Scout are having an exchange where Jim is struggling with his newfound revelation that there are simply different kinds of people in the world. There are different groups to which people belong. 
He sees how individuals can be like one group but not like others, and they're separated by the things that make them unique. But Scout isn't so sure about this. She thinks Jim is a little off base. And when he says there are different groups of people, she says, nah, Jim, I think there's just one kind of folks. Folks. Jim turned around and punched his pillow. When he settled back, his face was cloudy. He was going to to one of his declines, and I grew wary. His brows came together, his mouth became a thin line, and he was silent for a while. That's what I thought too, he said at last, when I was your age. But if there's just one kind of folks, why can't they all get along with each other? If they're all alike, why do they go out of their way to despise each other? Scout, I think I'm beginning to understand something. I think I'm beginning to understand why Boo Radley stayed shut up in his house all the time. It's because he wants to stay inside. Jim's question is often our own question, isn't it? Why can't we all just get along? Why do we spend so much of our time despising each other? Why can't everybody love everybody? And Scout's innocence is admirable, isn't it? The way she sees the world and others, it's a worldview that I hope all of our children will hold on to forever. It's one that doesn't see things that divide, but instead the things that we have in common. I pray that for my children. And I think this story is pertinent today because during this series, we're hearing about individuals who exhibit saintly qualities that we can emulate. They're the saints from scripture. They're the saints from our Wesleyan tradition and even individuals we might not have any relation to, but that we also can affirm as saints. Today we're considering what it means to be a saint of righteousness. And I think we have within our own denominational tradition one who we can lift up and see that saintly quality in. I'm not sure if you knew this or not. I bet many of you did. But Harper Lee was in fact a Methodist herself. She and I and Brianna and many of us who have been to Huntington College have in common that we share an alma mater with Harper Lee. Went to the the Methodist College up there in Montgomery. So we have one of our own to thank for a story that helps us consider what does it look like to live in a world with other people? What does it mean to be in a world where injustice is born out of prejudice? And she encourages us to a better way, a better way to try to see our fellow humans. And I think that's a lot of what righteousness is. It's not just about being right. If righteousness was just about being right, I would think I'm the most righteous person on this planet. But I think it's more about seeing the way God sees, particularly seeing others the way God sees others. Because when we're able to see other people the way God sees them, we can't help but be righteous because we're going to want to do right by them. We can't help but want to be righteous when we have the eyes of Christ to see our fellow sisters and brothers. And I think through this book and the way Harper Lee advocates for the rights of all people, she shows us what it looks like to be a saint of righteousness. She offers us an example of what it means to take on that saintly quality and see that God's perspective is bigger than any prejudice or preconceptions. 
she shows us the same thing that the Bible reveals to us in the person of King Melchizedek, the one we just read about from Genesis. And it's such a bizarre story, isn't it? Have you ever read this story before? I love this story, but it's strange. Perhaps you too have encountered this story and thought, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Because this story, it shakes up in a, in a troubling way, a narrative that permeates the very bedrock of many Christian and Jewish traditions and beliefs about identity and belonging. You see, there's a narrative in the world that religion is at its core exclusive. And this narrative is not without merit. Many people have had practical experiences which would prove this to be true. Maybe you've had an encounter with a religious person that made you feel like you were not good enough or you couldn't be part. That you're either an insider or an outsider. You either believe what we believe or you don't. You're either an us or them. In fact, wars have been fought and families have been divided about which group of insiders is right and which group of outsiders is wrong. Countries, families torn apart by questions about what it means to belong to a religion or how your group is the only worthwhile group. And sometimes it seems like that's what the Bible is saying, right? I mean, in my formative years, that's how I understood the Old Testament. That God only cares about the Israelites. That God only cares about his chosen people. And now, because of Jesus, we get to be a part of that chosen group. Because Jesus came and opened up the access to being a part of Israel, that we get to be a part of the insiders. We're part of the exclusive club. But then you read Genesis chapter 14. And you hear this account of King Melchizedek, and you realize that at the very beginning of the Bible, God was already of something very different than maybe we've traditionally thought. God is not telling a story of segmented exclusivity. Rather, God is telling a story of radical inclusion. Remember, Abraham was not supposed to be serving in and of himself for himself. His people were supposed to be a blessing to the nations. And you see, at this point in the Bible, it seems like the only way you could have experienced God is through that person, Abram, who was later called Abraham. And later, it seems like the only way you can know God is to have experienced God through the blessings of Abraham and his people and his family and the Israelites. It seems like the only way anyone in the ancient Near East could learn about or interact with or know God is if they first encountered an Israelite. Because that's kind of the way the story sounds, to be honest. But one day, when Abram is coming back from war, he encounters the king of Salem which is another name for an area of land which would later be called Jerusalem. He encounters King Melchizedek, whose name literally means king of righteousness. Melchizedek translated means king of righteousness. And he's the ruler of this area that would later be the capital for Abraham's people, the holy city. And he comes out bringing to Abram bread and wine. I mean, there should be all sorts of symbolic alarm bells going off in your head right now, right? Jerusalem, righteousness, bread, wine. And then the Bible says that he blessed Abram, saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. 
Now hold up just one minute. This guy who isn't related to Abram, he's not a descendant of the chosen people, he's not part of the tribe of Israel, he already knows who God is. And he brings one of the most obvious symbols of the Jewish and Christian tradition for God. He brings the bread and the wine that is served at Passover and communion. And the Bible says that this unknown king of righteousness offers Abram a blessing from the most high God, the same most high God that Abram knows and worships and that we now know through Jesus. This outsider who is not an insider has experienced and knows the one true God. And then to top it all off, the Bible says that Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abram paid tribute to this unknown outsider in the same manner which we pay tribute to God in the church and the way that Jewish people pay tribute to God in the temple by bringing a tenth to honor God. Doesn't this story just blow up so much of how we've understood the whole foundation of the Israelites and the Bible and religion? I mean, I remember going on mission trips as a kid and the kind-hearted people in the church, they'd be so proud of us for going to take Jesus to the people we're going to serve. Have you ever said that or heard that? I've said that before. The, the, going, taking Jesus to Brazil when I went there, to Cuba or to, where, to North Carolina. I remember thinking early in my track towards ministry that there was a world out there destined for hell if I did not convert them all to Christianity today. My hubris was never more on display than when I was convinced that me and my people were the only ones who had access to God. And then you hear about Melchizedek. And you can't help but rethink some things, right? But you know what's even crazier than all this story that we've, even, that we've already talked about? The craziest part about Melchizedek isn't even in Genesis. His name is mentioned two other times in the Bible, once in Psalms and once in the epistle lesson that was read earlier. The apostle Paul mentions Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews. And did you catch the reference? Did you hear how significant it was? The verses we just read today say that Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is a priest in the order of this king of righteousness that's not part of the Israelite story, but somehow still knew God, still loved and still worshiped the God most high. Jesus is a priest in the order of an outsider. So what does that tell us about Jesus? I think what it tells us about righteousness is that it's not an exclusive quality that is reserved just for us. But that righteousness is a quality that points towards God and can be found in saints around the whole world. Saints of righteousness show us that God's desire is not simply to speak to one group, to this small group, that we don't have the market cornered on divine revelation, but that God is already at work in the places we have yet to discover. Which brings me to our last saint this morning, a great saint of righteousness I wanna lift up today. Harper Lee is a saint of righteousness from our own tradition who helps us imagine a more just world. Melchizedek is a saint of righteousness we find there in the Bible. And the great missionary, Albert Schweitzer, shows us what righteousness looks like when it's practically lived out. When it's lived out through astonishing acts of faith like his life. 
Many of you might be familiar with Schweitzer. In fact, everyone here has at least gazed upon his face once or twice. He's right there in the window, bottom left-hand corner, the one with the mustache and the hat. That's Albert Schweitzer. He was the 1952 Nobel Peace Prize winner for his work at founding a hospital in French Equatorial Africa. Schweitzer, a Frenchman of many talents, could literally do anything he wanted in life. He was an organist, a writer, a philosopher, a medical doctor, and much more. Originally, a music scholar, after his studies, he went and was a sitting organist and fixing pipe organs and then decided, I'm going to go get another degree in theology. He eventually wrote a PhD dissertation on the philosophies of Immanuel Kant. And any person who's been to seminary will tell you there's not a harder subject. After he finished his dissertation, he decided, I want to go to school once again. And he studied to be a medical doctor. He graduated with his MD. The man was brilliant. He was talented beyond measure. But in 1912, he left Europe to go to Africa to live and work as a medical missionary for six years. He returned to Europe around the time of World War I, but eventually went back for another three years. And the majority of his prime and his later years in life, he went back and forth. The man could have lived in luxury in Europe. He could have amassed a fortune with his many talents. But he decided to spend the majority of his years living in poverty and serving others. One of the most educated men of his time didn't lord it over everybody else, but used what he had learned to do what he was feeling God had called him to. And as he reflected on his work while he was there in Africa, and as he thought about what God was doing in and through those people, he wrote about God and he said this. And I want to thank Trey for finding this quote that goes so well with the anthems. He says this about God. He comes to us as one unknown, without a name as of old by the lakeside. He came to those men who knew him not. He speaks to us the same words, follow me. And he sets us to the tasks which he has to fulfill for our time. He commands, and to those who obey him, whether they be wise or simple, he will reveal himself in the tolls and the conflicts the sufferings which they shall pass through in his fellowship, and as an ineffable mystery, they shall learn in their own experience who he is. It was Schweitzer's righteousness that allowed him to see that God was existing beyond his own walls. He was able to see that God was at work in a people who might not have had the same experiences he had, who might not have had the same education, who might not have the same background or beliefs. Schweitzer's lives and life and writings, they show us what it looks like to see others how God sees them and to live a life full of righteousness. You see, my friends, to be like the saints, to take on righteousness, we have to be able to see that God is bigger than our own limited sight, our own understandings. God is bigger than our tribe. When we go on mission trips, we aren't taking God with us like he's some travel soap in a carry-on suitcase. God is already there. This is what we as Methodists call provenient grace. 
We believe that God is already at work before you even get there. Before we even know who God is, God is at work in our lives. Just like before others know who God is, he's already at work in their lives. God goes ahead of us and is drawing us in. So for us to be like the saints, we have to see that no one people are God's people. All people are God's people. And our role is to tell them about how we have experienced the goodness of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Those who are wandering in the wilderness and experiencing God but not sure what this means or what it is, we have the opportunity to offer the good news of the gospel. That the God who is already at work in your life on this earth came and died for our sins and offers us the gift of eternal life. May we be able to see others the way God sees them and in so doing, take on the saintly quality of righteousness to offer love and grace not just because somebody deserves it, but like God, to give it freely to everyone. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.